Alistair Crowley. Now, there's been a lot said about this guy. While he was alive and still after his death, countless people have demonized him, making him out to be some kind of insane madman. He was even labeled as the wickedest man in the world by the English press. However, he really didn't help any matters concerning his reputation either because he referred to himself as the Great Beast 666, the apocalyptic antichrist from the book of Revelation in the Bible. This may just raise some eyebrows in modern times, but during Crowley's age, this was pretty much, I guess, social suicide. In the 19th and early 20th centuries, basically 90% of people were either conservative Christians or at least some kind of dominate denomination, I mean, of Christians. Crowley in his day was, Crowley was essentially a modern rock star born back in Victorian times. He was a non-conformist in a sea of conformity who relished in attacking the worldviews of the masses. But you'd be surprised that some very valid reasons led him down this supposed dark path. Just like anything, religion can be used for both good or evil, and basically anything in between. Early in life, Crowley suffered heavily from the oppressive religious dogma of zealots, which was the, the, uh, which was the inspiration for his lifelong war against Christianity. This and his dealings with esoteric traditions would even lead many to calling him a Satanist, which after a lot of research turned out to be kind of ridiculous. Only people who don't really know him or stuff he was into believe that kind of stuff. He didn't even believe in any of that kind of stuff in the Christian context. But it is very true that from his own point of view, he saw religion as evil. Sorry, let me clarify. The Christian religion. However, I do understand why some people would call him a Satanist. But the whole thing reminds me of one of my favorite quotes by the great Carl Jung. Thinking is difficult. That's why most people judge. Elster Crowley would dedicate his life to the study of the occult. Though he was also an extremely talented poet, an expert chess player, and a legendary mountain climber. In fact, there's a lot about the man's life that makes him extremely interesting. When first starting the research for this episode, I thought he was just basically a pampered British elite who never worked a day in his life. But Crowley actually suffered a lot of hardship and overcame insane odds on many occasions. Though Crowley was known to be pretty hard to deal with. He never claimed to be good and indeed never really even wanted to be. He would be the first to admit it. In Crowley's worldview, he embraced good just as much as bad as long as it was, quote, strong, to put it in his own words. Though he could also be very cruel, but never for no reason. Crowley was also very generous and kind to those he admired or considered friends taking care of people and spending vast amounts of money to help them, though usually not directly. He had a personal code against lending money to people. His legendary cruelty comes from the stories of his enemies for the most part, the press and whatnot, or other occultists, or people who crossed him, or at least he perceived as crossing him. There's no doubt he could be pretty petty, and Crowley was indeed capable of extremely horrible acts he could commit casually with no remorse whatsoever, which when seen out of context makes him look like, uh, I guess pretty vile. And the gutter press had a field day in dragging his name through the mud throughout his entire lifespan. So it's no wonder that the mainstream everything has a pretty dark view of Aleister Crowley. But what about the man behind the public image he portrayed to the masses? What made someone with a genius-level intellect like him believe in magic and dedicate his life to the occult? There's a lot people just don't really know about him. And there's way more questions than answers. Crowley was also an author and even a spy during World War I. In his pursuit of higher knowledge and spiritual enlightenment, he would travel across basically the entire world. He had a lot of money, so there was no limit on what he could do or where he could go. Well, for the most part, just in his early life, he kind of went broke later in life. In his world travels, he'd learn the core tenets of Buddhism and become a master of yoga, like a weird version of it. In fact, the man would become an expert in Hinduism too, among many other ancient religions. This guy's brain was really, really big. Aleister Crowley never did anything half-assed, committing himself to all he did with an intense passion rarely seen in human beings. 
There really is no denying that the man was an incredibly gifted genius from an objective point of view. He was way, way ahead of his time. And larger than life. I mean, he could do some pretty ridiculous things that at first seem unbelievable. I mean, Crowley could beat people at chess with his back turned to them. He would even close his eyes during it. He just visualized the board in his imagination and played with perfect accuracy. How crazy is that? It's, uh, it's pretty obvious that a lot of people who have covered Aleister Crowley have taken the old saying, never let the truth get in the... Wait, how does it go? Never let the truth get in the way of a good story to heart. If you watch videos on YouTube about him, there's often stereotypical creepy music in the background and many other ridiculous liberties taking with presenting his life story. So much to the point that I found most of it, um, at least the mainstream stuff, to be unreliable. Basically turning solely to literature in an attempt to get a clear picture of him. So let's do our best to take an objective and unbiased look at the man behind the myth and discover just who Aleister Crowley was. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. My fingernails grow on my fingers, and my fingers are fixed firmly to my hand. It is my hand that terminates my arm, and that sticks to my shoulder like a chalk. My shoulder is a portion of my trust. I hope no prostitute, however drunk, would end the shocking sequence. Yet we find, even in England, men of evil minds. Pornographers who love obscene details, shameless enough to mention fingernails. All right, let's start from the beginning, shall we? The Crowley family has actually been pretty prominent in British society for longer than America has even existed. In the 1700s, a Crowley would even pitch political schemes to Benjamin Franklin himself in an attempt to avoid the American Revolution. This Crowley's three sons supported the end of slavery in the British Empire, and their descendants would be prosperous businessmen, which is where the Crowley fortune came from. These were the Crowleys that were responsible for the creation of a popular brewery that established itself pretty much as the very first pub lunch, a place where someone could go to get lunch and a sandwich and a glass of ale for four pence, which was actually a pretty good deal back then. The pub lunch brewery would become so popular, many more would open and they'd have uh, a ton of imitators. But none were ever so successful, expanding basically all throughout England. The breweries would be the source of the Crowley family fortune for generations to come. But the family would also put their money into railroads throughout the 1800s, which was a pretty big booming business back then. Needless to say, Edward Crowley, who was Alistair Crowley's father, was born so rich that he never had to work or pursue a career, really. He was born with all the money he'd ever need to do, <laughs> I guess, basically anything he could ever want to do. But he was still a highly educated engineer, from the best schools Britain had to offer. Though, despite all of his education, he actually never got any job in engineering. He pretty much retired at the age of 26 to devote himself completely to religion. The Crowley family had been Quaker Christians for generations. But Edward wasn't really content to follow in his family's footsteps, much like his son after him. After a short stint as an Anglican clergyman, 
He would convert to the extremely zealous, fundamentalist sect of Christianity known as the Plymouth Brethren. Now, to say this sect was hardcore would be a vast understatement. Brethren members weren't even allowed to associate with people who were not part of the sect, which basically goes against all Jesus' teachings, but whatever. They would be forced to cut the ties with any family or even friends that would refuse to convert, and if someone left the church, then they would be completely ostracized and cut off from the rest of the brethren, which is an insanely powerful form of control some small few sects of Christianity still practice till this day. The brethren had an interesting perspective concerning Christianity that Catholics found revolting. All members of the congregation were considered basically completely equal in every way. They utterly denied any priestly authority whatsoever. This wasn't really a new idea. It kind of began with Martin Luther, but the brethren really kicked it up a notch. So they, they weren't really like a normal church at all. They didn't have pastors or elders or anything of that nature like you'd find in a modern church. Well, one of the more real Christian kind of churches, not zealots. Real Christians don't judge and act like a-holes to everyone that doesn't believe what they do. So remember first and foremost that I'm not trying to bash any religion in any way, because it can be a beautiful thing when people actually follow the teachings of Christ. But Crowley's father's sect of Christianity would probably be like the most annoying people you'd ever meet if they were still around today. To the brethren, there was no middleman between God and any individual person whatsoever, which was a bit too revolutionary for most Christians at the time especially in British society where everything had a hierarchy and there was a ladder of authority basically all throughout everything. British society was all about like kind of a a weird caste system, not a caste system, but definitely a class system based around authoritarianism or something like that. I don't know. I just know that their culture was all about respecting people of authority. Edward Crowley would be one of the front men of the Brethren Church, as well as one of its most influential writers. He'd preach all the time and give speeches frequently, basically wherever he went, even stopping people on the streets and trying to influence them to join the one and only true version of Christianity. And if he managed to get their address, then Edward would send religious pamphlets to their homes for years. The Brethren actually grew to become pretty big in its heyday. But to us in modern times, they would seem more like a bigoted, narrow-minded cult than anything else. The brethren believed in the Bible word for word as literal fact. So they didn't really care about evolution or historical facts or science or basically anything of that nature. To them, anything outside of what the Bible said was just lies from Satan to try and trick people away from God. So you can probably assume there wasn't any reasoning with these people in any logical way. And this is the type of Christianity that Aleister Crowley was born into. Edward Crowley was a charismatic orator who would basically preach to large crowds of people in public wherever he went. Back then, it wasn't considered strange to preach about God on the streets. And in fact, a lot of people would even often stop to listen to him. Back then, it wasn't considered strange to preach about God in the streets and... He traveled around England to preach for the brethren so often he could tell where someone's hometown was just by their dialect. And out of all the Crowleys, Edward would actually leave the family beer business. Edward would sell his shares to the family business out of a sense of his religious convictions and instead reinvest in Amsterdam's waterworks, which was actually pretty successful. Basically, all the Crowleys seemed to be really good at making a profit with business decisions, or at least having good luck at it. In 1874, he got married to Alistair's mother, Emily, who would share in her husband's fiery religious beliefs. Soon after the marriage, she would get pregnant and give birth to Edward Alexander Crowley on October 12, 1875, the baby that would one day be known as Alistair, who, uh, who changed his name upon reaching adulthood. His birth name was Edward. However, when he was young, he was known simply as Alec, which was the family nickname for him. And baby Alec was actually born with a slight deformity. He had a strange condition where his tongue was attached to the bottom of his mouth from extra skin. And the doctor actually had to cut it free with a knife in order for him to develop properly. 
And because of this, for Aleister Crowley's entire life, he actually couldn't pronounce the letter R correctly, which is a very, very little known fact. Needless to say, he was quickly baptized into the Brethren faith, and his parents had a very direct life path planned out for him with an extremely strict worldview that they tried to indoctrinate him into. But Crowley was actually a very, very devout young man and loved God, Jesus, and the whole spiel, I guess. Though he was punished harshly in the name of God, constantly for sins or whatever, you know. Eventually, down the line, his father's church had a schism. The brethren were basically divided in half, one dogma believing one thing, the other dogma believing another, and, you know, since they believed something in a slightly different manner, then the opposing group had to be heretics. Now, Crowley was growing up in this group of fanatical Christians, and he made a lot of friends and... Not only that, but he grew attached to the other parents and people in the organization. One of the main things that damaged him was after the schism, he wasn't allowed to talk to or interact with people he'd grown up with for years. So he lost a lot of his friends and people that he felt comfortable with. All just gone because his daddy said so. Well, and, you know, the rest of the religious people. This had a permanent effect on Crowley. Why would the church demonize all these people who were once welcomed as brothers? Or almost like family-like? But that was just the beginning of Crowley's realization that maybe the Plymouth Brethren were kind of assholes. And that Christianity overall in general was just for dumb people and a form of control from his perspective. This was just the beginning of Crowley's issues, though. He'd already lost a whole plethora of people that he'd grown attached to and loved. But at the age of eight, they sent him off to a pretty twisted British pastime called boarding school. Where your kid, was this little kid, you know, keep in mind, little, little kid, sent away to be all, with all strangers, all boys, in a strange environment, in a place where people are treated very, very cruelly as a way to raise strong nobles. It was mostly just for the elite of, of Britain. But these things are notorious for some pretty dark stuff like molestation, um, you know, you name it, just abuse. Basic abuse that causes trauma. And he was shipped off at eight to this. And don't get me wrong, boarding schools are much nicer now because as a, in the information age, there's a spotlight on everybody. So you can't go around just like beating students or allowing bullies to just completely you know, do whatever they want to people who couldn't defend themselves all the time for fun. Let's just say it's not somewhere that you'd like to send an eight-year-old that you want to grow up to be. Let's just say it's not a good place to send eight-year-olds. Crowley had a horrible time in school. Like, really, anything you can think of, it's really much worse. And there's a lot of evidence pointing towards him being molested. Anyway, he was in this horrible boarding school for a while, having an extremely rough childhood. And at the age of 11, Edward Crowley, his father, died of tongue cancer. So there goes another person that he was extremely attached to. This was a huge turning point in Crowley's life. And this is basically in his own words saying this in his journals, where he described his father as my hero and my friend. He really looked up to the guy. He did, however, inherit his father's massive, massive wealth. But soon after this, he began misbehaving in school, being a troublemaker basically wherever he went. He was harshly punished, and eventually he was even removed from the school. And he would basically school hop from school to school for a bit. He would behave so badly that his mother would refer to him as the Great Beast from Revelation. And instead of being opposed to this nickname, Crowley did a very Crowley thing to do and embraced it. For the rest of his life, he'd been calling himself the Beast 666 as a mockery of the insult his mother gave him as a child. He became more and more disenfranchised with the Brethren and Christianity in general. In church, he began pointing out the inconsistencies in the Bible to his religious teachers and basically went against the morality of 
all Christianity by smoking, masturbating, and having sex with prostitutes, though he did lose his virginity to a maid, his maid, his family's maid. And Crowley just basically all around had a rocky, you know, teenage years, all that stuff. All the scars on his face, like the little, the, I don't know what the word is, potch marks, I don't know. They came from when he put a bunch of gunpowder in a jar, put it in the ground, and lit it on fire to explode it. The explosion put him in the hospital and knocked him out for a bit. And all of the rocks and crap got lodged in his face. It got taken out, but that's where he got his face scars. But eventually Crowley was done with school, done with all the other crap he had to do, and was a free man to do whatever he wanted. Crowley would develop an intense interest in poetry. Not only that, but he loved chess. Loved it. In fact, if Crowley never became an occultist doing all that stuff that he did, he would probably have gone down in history as one of the best poets who ever lived. I'm not kidding. He was a really, really talented poet. But out of all of his many interests as he grew into a man, his favorite and most passionate was mountain climbing. In 1894, he joined the Scottish Mountaineering Club. And he actually accomplished some crazy climbs that nobody else could do, and some people said was straight up impossible, like climbing the beachy head in England. And it's around this time that he adopted the name Alistair, throwing away his Edward name that he was born with forever. And in 1895, he began a three-year course at Trinity College, Cambridge. He studied philosophy and English literature, and even became the president of the chess club, practicing the game for two hours a day, every day. He even briefly considered a professional career as a chess player, all the while embracing his love of literature and poetry. He had a personal library that was massive, but understandable for somebody of his wealth. And during his time at Cambridge, many of his own poems appeared in the student publications, such as the Granta, Cambridge Magazine, and the Cantab, though he always continued his mountaineering fascination and even went to the Alps for hiking. And when we come back, we'll start to get into Aleister Crowley's first mystical experiences and also his journey into adulthood. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Don't go anywhere. My name is Anubis. You may remember me from such places as Egypt and the Underworld. Anyway, please make sure to follow Cryptic Chronicles on Facebook. So, uh, on, uh, what are the rest called? Oh, yeah. Also, follow them on Tumblr, Twitter, YouTube, and social media in general. Also, we're running out of some mummy wrappings, so if you could send some to Ma'at, that'd be great. Well, I guess that's all for now. I'll talk to you soon again, and, um, well, I'm in the underworld, so I guess I'll see you soon. That is all. Anubis out. Oh, wow. Thanks, Anubis. Now, since Crowley made it one of his missions in life to take on what he saw as one of the greatest forms of oppression and thought control, Christianity, it's no wonder he was down to experiment in ways the current people of the time would have looked at in horror. Crowley's first mystical experience came allegedly after having sexual relations with another man, though he is vague at what this mystical experience was, many of his biographers say that this is what he meant. And if the biographers are correct, after this encounter, he would embrace his bisexuality for the rest of his life. And it was actually pretty dangerous because back then, any homosexuality whatsoever was against the fucking law and could ruin someone's life. Though he was one of the elite, so it probably would have just been a heavy fine for him a little slap on the wrist. It was still dangerous business. Though at this point in his life, he already cared little about how people think or 
how they thought he should live, he would still keep his escapades into homosexuality or his bisexuality, sorry, private for fear of retribution from society. He never wanted to be ostracized or that guy, basically. But despite him keeping it all secret, it seems in his character. The best part of it to Crowley was that it was one of the utmost blasphemies in the Christian religion to sleep with another man. Though he never said any of this explicitly, and, and like I said, whenever he would talk about it, he was very vague about his first mystical experience. However, whatever this experience was, it was so profound it changed the direction of his life forever. From this point on, Aleister Crowley would become interested in all things opposed to Christianity and mainstream society in general. Chief amongst these would be magic and the occult. Crowley's library would increasingly contain books on Western esotericism, and his love of the mysteries slowly came to dominate his mind. Around 1887, Crowley would journey to Russia with an interest to learn the language. A lot of people were astonished at this and kind of looked down on him for it. He claimed it was because he wanted a future in diplomacy for the British Empire. But this is where some conspiracy theories about him come in. See, to some of his biographers, Crowley was recruited as a secret agent all the way back at this time in his life, and that he was being trained for a career in espionage. Crowley was definitely a spy later in life, but at this point so early in his life, it's still up in the air if he was uh, up to spy stuff or not, though there's no way to prove it or disprove it. Interesting stuff, though. Eventually, Crowley left Russia earlier than intended, the official reason being that he became ill, but honestly, who knows with this guy? Could have been a bunch of different reasons, but Crowley did tell everyone that he was abandoning a career as a diplomat and returned to England. And when he returned, the man showed far more of a dedication to the occult. He purchased A.E. Waits, the Book of Black Magic and Packs, and started fully tinkering with the mysteries. The entire time he was still writing poetry, making many esoteric poems. Um, he even privately published a lot of his poetry. A lot of it was erotic poetry, which was kind of a hard sell in the Victorian era. So he didn't really make much money, but... Then again, at this point in his life, the last thing Crowley needed was money. And as always, he continued his mountaineering, his uh, first and foremost love. Well, other than the occult, that is. In 1889, Crowley had a fateful meeting with a chemist named Julian L. Baker, who was secretly a member of a prominent secret society. Crowley had been looking for a teacher for some time, and in a lot of the books he read on the occult, they said that when you were ready, the teacher will come to you. Little did he know it that he was getting an introduction to the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. The Hermetic Order was utterly dedicated to discovering all the mysteries of existence, the paranormal, and of course, everything occult. The members all had extremely gifted intellects, and their ranks contained some of the most profound thinkers and even celebrities of the age. The secret society practiced many different forms of magic, but mostly high magic uh, and theurgy. A lot of it was directed more inward towards personal evolution than outwards towards material gain, but they could definitely use it for material gain, at least uh, according to them. I'm not saying that magic is real or that you should believe in it. I'm just saying that these people definitely believed in it. The only way to get into the Golden Dawn was to be initiated. And in order to be initiated, you had to be selected by a member. And the attributes that the members of the Golden Dawn looked for, let's just say many people don't have. But the members of the Order definitely saw promise in Aleister Crowley. He was blindfolded and taken to the temple for initiation. And Mr. Crowley finally had his wish. Teachers and an organization to support his study of the occult. The order was founded by Masons and Esotericists, McGregor Mathers being chief amongst them. Well, not at first, but later. See, originally Mathers had uh, shared, I mean, a more equal role with the other two founders. But as the order moved on, he took firm control of it. Mathers was a genius who was instrumental in decoding and translating many of the documents that would go on to be some of the core tenets of the Golden Dawn. 
He had a huge influence in the occult world, and his work basically still resonates till this day. He was an author and responsible for a lot of the Hermetic Kabbalah that's come down through the years. So McGregor Mathers is a legendary occultist, easily on par with Aleister Crowley, though not as well known. Oh, and an interesting fact is that McGregor Mathers' branch of the Golden Dawn is actually still around today. It's called the Alpha Omega. Though there are people who would debate that. So anyway, I'm getting kind of off topic here. Aleister Crowley joined this huge, sprawling, awesomely knowledgeable group of occultists. In fact, he was rising too quickly because he was starting to upset the other members. McGregor Mathers was fond of Crowley and took a special interest in him, which a lot of the other high-ranking and junior members of the Golden Dawn did not appreciate. Though despite how fast Crowley was rising, it was still not enough for him, and he kind of branched out researching stuff and getting into stuff he really wasn't ready for and uh, wasn't part of his curriculum, magical curriculum. One of these things was the notorious Goetia. If you know, well, if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you're probably familiar with King Solomon. Well, King Solomon was granted dominion over demons by God and used them to build the first temple. Now, the Golden Dawn definitely uh, has practices where they control demons or any spirits for that matter, be that like uh, elementals or ghosts or anything you can really think of. Golden Dawn adepts are basically all exorcists, so they do mess with that stuff after a lot of time preparing themselves and learning and going through all the different magical grades. The Goetia is a guidebook on how to summon and control the demons of Solomon. Needless to say, that was way above Aleister Crowley's current pay grade in the order. But luckily, this messing around with stuff he wasn't ready for actually led to good things, having a teacher that skyrocketed him even faster through the grades. When he was at the temple with the rest of the order doing whatever it is occultists do, he was approached by one of the most senior members. I forgot to mention that every single member of the Golden Dawn takes a secret name uh, after initiation. And Aleister Crowley's was Perturabo. This senior member I was talking about, his name was Alan Bennett. At the temple, he called out to Perturabo, saying, You've been messing with the Goetia. To which Crowley completely denied. But then Alan Bennett said some creepy stuff, turning to him and saying, Well, then the Goetia has been messing with you. Was it possible some entities were following Crowley around and that this Alan Bennett could actually see them? Who knows? What I do know is that they hit it off, and Alan Bennett came to live with Crowley in his own flat, where he was his personal magical tutor. And with Bennett's help, he was soon surpassing all of the other members that were near his grade. With Bennett's help, he learned more about ceremonial magic than he could ever dream of. And this is the beginning of Aleister Crowley's use of drugs for his magical work, because Bennett was pretty into it. The two of them then did all kinds of crazy stuff. And Alan Bennett would remain one of Aleister Crowley's biggest friends, I guess, if he had friends, for many years to come. However, all good things do come to an end. Bennett was pretty sick and had to get out of England for his own health. He was extremely into Buddhism, so he was planning on going to one of the Buddhist countries to further not only his magical skills, but his Buddhist skills as well. The only problem was that he did not have the money for the journey. So like I've said, Crowley in his early 20s was really loaded on cash. Do whatever he wanted. But he had a personal code against lending his friends money. However, Crowley was nothing if not resourceful, and he was dating a girl who he just broke up with, though she really wanted to get back with him. He wasn't really into it or feeling it. And here comes Crowley's ruthless side. Because he told her that he would get back with her or whatever if she just paid for Bennett's trip to wherever Buddhist country he was going. And the poor girl totally did it. The only problem was when she went to Crowley saying like, I did what you asked, please have me back. He told her to get lost. He just used her for her money. This is one of the first many prickish things documented that he does to women. Always remember that Aleister Crowley was never a hero and never wanted to be. He's not a good guy. Not necessarily a bad guy, but, well, maybe a little bit of a bad guy, but he's not evil, but skates that fine gray line of morality. In the Golden Dawn, he was now without his greatest teacher. 
but it only just slowed his already impressive rise to prominence in the order. In November 1899, Crowley purchased Bolskin House in Foyers on the shore of Loch Ness in Scotland. He kinda was influenced by McGregor Mather's love for Scottish culture and, you know, going with uh, one of his mentor's favorite passions, he also developed a love for Scottish culture, describing himself as the Lord of Bolskin. He even took to wearing traditional Highland dress, <laughs> even during his visits to London. And this whole time, he's still doing his mountain climbing. He continued writing his poetry, publishing Jezebel and other tragic poems, Tales of Archaeus, Songs of the Spirit, Appeal to the American Republic, and Jephthah. Most kind of gained iffy reviews from literary critics, though Jephthah was considered a pretty good success. And we'll continue Aleister Crowley's time in the Golden Dawn right after this short break. You're listening to Cryptic Chronicles. listeners, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Please support the show by using our sponsor, Blueberry. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes, as well as pretty much all podcast hubs. Don't worry about contracts or expensive fees. You have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. You won't ever have to leave your own website. Blueberry hosting really is the key to podcast success. Try it for a month free and a month of free podcast statistics by going to crypticchroniclespodcast.com. At the bottom of the homepage, you'll see the Blueberry link. By going through us, you'll really be helping us out. Also, make sure to support the show by joining the Chronicler's Vault. By supporting us on Patreon, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes. The more financial support we get, the more content we can produce. Anything will help, so if you can't afford the Chronicler's Vault, simply donate whatever you can, and we would greatly appreciate it. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click the donation button on the bottom of the homepage. To keep up to date with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, or our Facebook page. Throwing the Facebook page a like would also be very awesome. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles. Most of all, thanks for listening. All right, thanks, Ashley. If you didn't know who did that commercial thingy, that's my girlfriend, and she's very pretty and awesome. And back to the old bard. Alistair would definitely miss the greatest teacher he's had so far, but Bennett's health just couldn't remain stable in Britain. The sickly magician would become a master of esoteric Buddhism in the East, but it was actually not the last time he'd see Crowley. At this time in his life, Alistair was in his prime and almost over the cusp of being introduced to the deeper mysteries the Golden Dawn had to offer. Despite the loss of Bennett's guidance, it wasn't long before McGregor Mathers took him under his wing. Now, from what I've read, one of the main problems with ceremonial magicians like those in the Golden Dawn is that if they don't fully achieve something called depolarization or stay long enough in the magical grades, the rituals they perform can give them a massively overblown ego. Rushing through the grades could really be bad, but everyone was always seeking that higher title. England in this time was all about titles and prestige. It was, I am this person from here in this family of this. I have this of that and the titles of this. A lot of the members just wanted to get out of the lower grades as fast as possible. Because they were basically looked down upon instead of being viewed as the most important since they were actually the foundation of all to come. Something that should have been about a higher purpose slowly became about their egos. So when the other magicians saw that the head of the Golden Dawn was just given some random new person special attention, it ruffled some feathers to say the least. I mean, the order started to shift for many reasons into two distinct factions. It wasn't just Aleister Crowley rocking the boat. You see, the founding doctrine that the Golden Dawn was based on had a legend around it that I'm actually not going to get into for reasons of expediency. But let's just say that Mathers made a statement that shook the order to its core. The true masters of the Golden Dawn, allegedly, you know, 
got to take a lot of this with a grain of salt. The true masters of the Golden Dot, according to Mathers and the others, were divine beings called the Secret Chiefs. Well, McGregor Mathers changed the original legend about them and proclaimed that he was the only one of the order with direct communication with them. But the higher-ranking magicians of the Golden Dawn had been growing in rebellion for some time, and no doubt thanks to their massively overblown egos, each one thinking they should be the head of the order, not Mathers. It's not all McGregor Mathers' fault. He had to resort to harsher means in order to keep these rebellious members of the Golden Dawn in line. Though this kind of did make things worse because now they were beginning to call the man a tyrant. Mathers was doing his best to keep the Golden Dawn intact, with Perturabo, good old Crowley, slowly becoming one of his greatest allies. So there were many factors leading to the eroding unity of the Hermetic Order. Alistair Crowley can't take all the credit. One unique thing about the Golden Dawn back in those days was that both men and women were accepted into the Order equally which was extremely, extremely progressive for those times. It's hard to get that across enough, I guess. I don't know. But the magicians of the order considered men and women completely equal in every way, just as their occult philosophy did, holding in reverence the masculine and feminine energies that balance all things in nature. So all the way from the start, this secret society was way ahead of its time all the way back in the 1800s. They were philosophers, scholars, astrologists, with alleged psychic powers, and very interested in the assistance of freedom and liberty for all humanity. So despite there being some ego-crazy people at the top, there were still a lot, a lot of good people in the Golden Dawn. I can't get the importance of that across enough. Despite all the good intentions of most people in the Order, though, you always gotta have bad with the good too, am I right? and the politics were getting out of hand fast for the occult secret society. And at the Crowley era of the Golden Dawn, there were many that questions if McGregor Mathers should be the leader of the Golden Dawn at all, despite the fact that he basically brought it all together. Well, <laughs> that's not entirely true. He and two other founders brought it all together, but no one ever questioned that it was Mathers who did most of the work. And if you've never heard of this kind of stuff before, I'm sure that it sounds pretty nuts. And I hope it's weird enough for you. Because some of the stories behind Aleister Crowley defy belief and get pretty out there and crazy. It's really up to you on what to think about them. But there's no getting around that these Crowley episodes are going to be pretty weird if I'm going to try and be objective about them. The young Aleister was digging deep into things he wasn't ready for and around this time had a premature exposure to astral projection. In the astral realm, a flaming circle burned around him, where a nightmarish monster pounded at the exterior, raging, trying to get in. But he knew exactly what this entity was. The shadow. The evil persona. Before him was the personification of all malevolence within him. After this horrific encounter, Crowley at least seemed none for the worse, but it was obvious to others of the Order that it had moved him deeply. Crowley eventually became inspired to perform a ritual that was not part of the Golden Dawn curriculum for his grade, and was actually pretty far advanced, only for advanced adepts, you know, high-ranking people, who put in years and years of work. This ritual was called the Abramelin Operation, a dangerous magical ritual that took an astonishing six months to complete. The, the man that the ritual was named after, Abramelin, was a renowned magician from the Dark Ages. And there's a whole bunch of stuff on him too I can do in a later episode. Anyway, Crowley needed seclusion for the Abramelin Operation and decided to buy a house on the shores of Loch Ness. And yes, this is the Loch Ness where the Loch Ness monster cryptid supposedly lives. Crowley began the ceremony and countless entities were said to have been evoked into the house, and moving shadows could be seen about the home, on the lawns, and on the terraces. Alistair definitely left an impression on the people who lived in the area. Those who visited him during the operation did so at their own peril. One of the workers he brought with him even went insane and tried to kill him. His maid left, and 
the servants got sick in bizarre ways. The most dangerous thing that the magician could possibly do during the Bramelin ritual was to stop it. It had to be completed all the way to the end, or the occultist would be at the mercy of all the entities he'd summoned. However, during the six-month ritual, Crowley got a message from the Golden Dawn. He'd put in a request to be promoted into the second grade of the Order. The response was that he was denied entry. This really pissed Crowley off. I mean, it was pretty arrogant of him to think that he would be allowed in so soon after his initiation, and it would have been sooner than anyone else who'd ever risen through the grades ever. So objectively, there was a good reason to deny him. But there were also personal reasons behind it that Crowley was very aware of. He knew that there were many in the Golden Dawn that despised him for the special treatment he'd received from Bennett and Mathers, not to mention his far too fast rise in the Order. Crowley chose to do the opposite of what he should have done and left the ritual, returning to McGregor Mathers and telling him that he'd been denied entry into the Second Order for personal reasons. Now, I told you how dangerous it is to stop the Abramelin ritual, and this whole stopping during the ritual thing has led many to claim that this was a turning point for Crowley, though probably despite his will. To stop the ritual was to invite possession or worse. Some claim that what left that secluded home at Loch Ness back to England was not entirely Alistair Crowley anymore. But to be fair, these opinions have come from people who don't really know what they're talking about. Do you think it's possible that Crowley was no longer fully under control of himself after this botched, dangerous ritual? Nonetheless, he returned to the Master of the Golden Dawn. McGregor Mathers was in a bind with all the politics going on within the Order, and like I said, not only saw Crowley as a promising student, but as a useful ally. He offered to personally initiate Crowley into the Second Order if he defended him against the rebel magicians and gave him full access to his wealth in an attempt to bring order back to the Golden Dawn. Though... Was all for nothing because at this point, a schism in the order was all but inevitable. And after Mathers initiated Perturabo, aka Alistair Crowley, into the second order against the will of the adepts, a rebellion quickly followed. Don't get me wrong, there was a lot more to it, but I'll just sum it up as best as I can to get to the point. Many of the high ranking Golden Dawn members turned on McGregor Mathers and removed him from the order, which is a funny thing to do considering that roughly half of the Order were still loyal to him. The damage was severe, though, because it dissolved the unity of the Hermetic Order. What was once a united organization with structure and clear goals became splinter groups. The battle for the Golden Dawn concerning Crowley was kind of funny, though, too, because he showed up to confront them in full Highland regalia. He had a kilt on, bagpipe, and everything. And even at this time, that was considered pretty eccentric. And that's even among these people who believed in magic. And though McGregor Mathers uh, played one of the biggest instrumental key roles in forming the Golden Dawn, the whole thing was actually based off something called Rosicrucianism. The Rosicrucians allegedly going back to the Dark Ages and even beyond that, to the uh, mystery schools of Greece and Egypt, to even the esoteric beliefs of the Canaanites and basically all of the Mesopotamian mystery cults. Though the name Rosicrucian actually comes from somebody named Christian Rosencruz, who allegedly lived during the Dark Ages, like I said. Anyway, there's tons and tons and tons of lore to get lost in behind the Golden Dawn, and... I don't really have time to get into it all, but it's pretty interesting and weird. Though the claims that Rosicrucianism goes back basically to the beginning of human history can't be proved, it really can't be disproved either. But if you want some objective proof, I guess, of when Hermeticism came around, which is also what the Golden Dawn is all about, it can be traced to around the birth of Christ, at least in a scholarly manner. But you have to also remember that a lot of information has been lost and humankind actually has like maybe a sliver of its true history. And not a lot of stuff that is in Hermeticism can actually be found in ancient Egypt. So though the proof proof only goes back about 2000 or more years, 
little imagination creativity can actually go along with the ancient, ancient, ancient theory. In our modern times, we have to take everything literally, everything as fact. Oh, if it doesn't have this documentation here, then it's not true. If it doesn't, you know, fact checks everywhere, all that. But there were a lot of people who destroyed knowledge on purpose in ancient times. And then they rewrite history or they just get rid of stuff that didn't go along with what they wanted, their narrative of the world. I mean, look at the burning of the Library of Alexandria. How much of human knowledge was lost there alone? Knowledge is dangerous and people in charge, especially dictators and kings, they don't want people to have it. So it's easy to just throw out a lot of this stuff as superstitious nonsense, but you should always remember one of my favorite quotes from Voltaire. History is the lie commonly agreed upon. Only recent history is really reliable, and even that's skewed. Now let's hear a little bit more from Aleister Crowley himself. Mr. Canning. Down crash. Up an immobile and brainless barrier of ice. Courage. The grey god shoots a laughing lip. Let not faith founder with the ship. We reel before the blows of fate. Our stout souls stagger at the shock. Oh, there is something ultimate. Fast over the living rock. Courage. Catastrophe beyond relief. Harden our hearts with fear and grief. The gods upon the titans shower their high intolerable storm. But no god knoweth in what hour a new Prometheus may be born. Courage. And his doom goes driving down. A crown of thorns is still a crown. No power of nature shall withstand the last the spirit of mankind. It is not Joseph in his hand. It is not watchful to the wise. Courage is after an instruction tends to call our triumph in the end. Stand 
and join hands and let us sing. Sink out, O oh, glory to the skies, with heart and hand defiant fling our purpose against destiny. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, so let it be, in God we trust. Now, there's actually very little recorded of Crowley's actual voice. There's very few audio recordings of him. So, hope you enjoyed that little treat. And yeah, it's kind of creepy. After the splintering of the Golden Dawn, Crowley became kind of jaded to it. And he was offended at all those people who wouldn't allow him into the Second Order. He would go off on his own for a bit and, all the while, still practicing his new occult knowledge he learned from the Order. He was armed with all the esoteric knowledge he would ever need from the Golden Dawn. And actually, most of his work to come originates from what he learned there. Some people even saying that a lot of what he did is just a ripoff. But it is a fact that Aleister Crowley would never have been anything without the Golden Dawn. Which is a shame because he gives little credit to it later in his life. Okay, well, that's all for this first episode on Aleister Crowley. I'll keep on coming back to him until we cover the poet's entire life. I know this stuff pertaining to the occult and its secret societies is pretty out there, but I'm sure you found it fascinating nonetheless. In the next episode on Crowley, I'll get into his journey to Egypt, where he claimed he was chosen to be the prophet of a new aeon by the Egyptian god Horus. We've actually barely scratched the surface of this notorious occultist. And please support Cryptic Chronicles on Patreon. For as little as a buck a month, you can show just how much you appreciate this podcast and all of the hard work I put into it. Make sure to follow us on Tumblr, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Our Facebook group is pretty hopping, and we would love for you to join. I also really enjoy making memes for the Facebook page. Special thank you to Angela Allen Delaire. Mark Lane, Ashley Holding, Tiana Holcomb, and all Patreon supporters. Please visit the website and read our juicy articles on everything weird. We have a few new writers now, Lily Lutz and Damien Skeen. Thank you very much for your recent contributions. If you have any of your own stories or anything you'd like to contribute or any ideas of what kind of cryptic stuff you'd like to be covered on the show, then please email it to crypticchroniclespodcast at gmail.com. And that's a wrap. I'm your host, Tim Hacker. Thank you so much for supporting Cryptic Chronicles, but most of all, thanks for listening.
Bada bing, bada boom, bada bing, bam, boom.